We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Welcome to episode 10 of the uh, Existentialist podcast. And today we're going to be talking once again in a slightly different way about authenticity. Last uh, episode, you would have heard us give personal reflections on each other and how we met and what we thought of each other in the initial phases and then kind of how we came to know each other. And as a bit of an example of a way of tending towards authenticity, finding our own authentic self, kind of looking at both the inner and the outer parts of ourselves. Today we're going to go a little bit more into the theory, the technical kind of things, talking about authenticity and and really how it applies in real life, how it applies to us as therapists, how to be authentic therapists, and hopefully to to give you guys a, a sense of of maybe how could you as the listeners become more authentic or, or present your more authentic selves to the world. And uh, yeah, hopefully we provide you with something really uh, interesting and stimulating. Yeah, thank you, Sal. So should we start with um, just bringing um, ourselves here together and uh, maybe sharing a bit how do we find ourselves today, right now, as authentically as possible? Like, how are we doing? How do we find ourselves right now? I mean, I suppose I can just say one of the things that is forefront of my mind today is the absence or the relative absence of smoke in, in the city of Vancouver today. I can see the mountains again for the first time in mm-hmm. almost 10 days. And for listeners who aren't in the Pacific Northwest, there have been major fires in Oregon and Washington and California and all that smoke's made its way up here. And it's been sitting kind of almost like in a basin in Vancouver. And it's been an unwelcomed addition to already kind of restrained lives under COVID. So I'm quite happy. I can go for a bike ride tomorrow, I think. And for myself, I'm kind of a bit tired because I <laughs> I didn't sleep too much last night. I had to to read something and give some feedback. And and then I was also thinking a bit about our episode today. And, and then I, uh, yeah, you know, when you don't fall asleep at the right time, then I couldn't fall asleep until very early hours of the morning. And then I had to go and see some clients and come here. So I'm a bit sleepy, but I have my coffee with me. And other than that, yeah, I also enjoy the, the fresher air for sure. It was such a difficult time these past two weeks to endure the smoke and the poor air quality here. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this in the second part of our topic of authenticity. So I'm excited. Yeah, as I settle into kind of finding myself here today, I think I feel a bit conflicted in answering the question about how I'm doing, mostly because I can feel like tears behind my eyes. It's been an emotional day and I just feel kind of, yeah, I feel good though within that. Like I feel warm and comfortable and content to be here. And so I think part of the the reason that makes it 
difficult sometimes to share authentically is it's like, okay, well, if I'm not going to share what it is that has me feeling emotional, then is there still value in sharing that that is how I feel and kind of more of the process, I guess. So yeah, on a process level, I feel emotional. I There's some sadness, some tears there. But yeah, that's kind of where I'll leave it for myself today. Thank you so much for that, Chelsea. And for being here, considering how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, I can sort of share in that, although I was thinking today has been a bit of a reprieve in light of how I've been feeling over the past week or so. It hasn't been a fantastic week. I've felt very overwhelmed and like to the point of paralysis, just ineffective and not being able to relax, but not being able to do anything or make any sort of headway in the things I need to get done. So hasn't been a great feeling and my heart rate's been high and what have you. So today is kind of a, I woke up feeling like, okay, that pressure is lifting. I'm feeling a bit of a, of a reprieve from that. So it came on a good day because I'm definitely more in the mood to be with people than I have been. So that is good. And I'm excited to talk about this topic because it's always my favorite thing when I ask people about authenticity or what they think of it and hearing people say, well, I would consider myself to be an authentic person. It's like, oh, okay, why? And how come? And what do you consider to be authenticity and whatnot? So I've looked forward to this topic for a little while. Yeah, me too, actually. And I, is it okay maybe to... um... To share something that maybe moved me when you're checking, Chelsea, you said something that I think pertains to our topic, and I think the two of us have just chatted a bit about this. Like when we are sharing authentically, or, or um, when we share our true feelings or emotions, like do we have to say everything as raw and as you know as they are, or um, can we actually? keep some boundaries between our private, you know, intimate process and what we share with others. And I I asked this question also in connection to our episode on emotional dishonesty. Is it dishonest or authentic to make decisions about uh, how much to share in a certain context? Because I guess that is a, a bit of a myth that goes around sometimes, like being authentic means that you have to share everything. Yeah, to go off what you said, I think, you know, there's a lot of like rah, rah, rah around. I'm going to speak my truth Mm -hmm. and speak it loudly everywhere. Everyone Mm -hmm. is going to hear. But yeah, for me, that just doesn't fit because there's certain contexts where I think things are appropriate, but I still feel like I can be vulnerable and share Mm -hmm. authentically what I'm feeling without necessarily disclosing what that's about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And for myself, I know how difficult I find the check-ins in every group context. And it doesn't matter if I, I'm a group member or a trainer or even a teacher. Like It's just difficult to check in because I think I'm. it's so at the beginning of everything that it's. I find myself holding back more. But as the group progresses or there is more, you know, settling and more community, in that setting, it's easier. It draws my uh, more of myself out. And on that note, you'll notice that I will avoid authentic self or true self. And I will come back to that. 
but I'm curious how my colleagues are thinking if there is anything more about the topic. Like, is authenticity sharing everything, like in a raw form everywhere or whenever you are asked? I, I certainly agree that, that it's not, that saying everything that comes to mind or every single comment or thought that you might have of your own or about mm-hmm. somebody certainly isn't, I think, authenticity is about. I learned that in a very kind of interesting way. I was lucky enough to go through a, a process that, at least in our school of existential analysis, is called personal existential analysis, mm-hmm. conducted by the founder of existential analysis, Alfred Langley. And it was a personal issue that I had, and it was about my difficulty sharing my actual thoughts and parts of myself with people that, well, with one person in particular that I want, that I cared for, but who seemed to not be able to receive it a lot. And through this process, I got to a point where the final question was really, okay, well, now that you know what you want to say, do you want to say it? And my reaction in a very kind of calm and grounded and light way, which is always how I judge something as being true, if you like, for me, was, I think the phrase that I used was, no, this belongs to me. And so it was enough for me mm-hmm. to had to know it and have it for me that I didn't want to share it and I didn't need to share it. And although that person will never know what I think and what I feel, I still believe I was being authentic, at least with myself. And that part of my authenticity was also to not share that with that person. Oh, that's such a good example. I mean, it really anchors this discussion into something, a personal example. Would you, so you said that you felt you were authentic with yourself. Do you think you are um, uh, emotionally dishonest with the other person? Um, that's a challenge coming from another episode. Yeah. <laughs> sure. No, not at all. Okay. For two reasons. One is it was the other person has not yet demonstrated that they would be able to receive it. Mm-hmm. as it's meant to be, not as they would interpret it in some defensive way. And then the other part is that, and this was much more the settled, the kind of calm, relieving nature when I said that phrase, was that it settled within me, that my need to share that disappeared. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's, well, that's yeah. what I think made it authentic. Yeah. So it looks like being authentic requires also some conditions like to, I mean, you're not just authentic because it's trendy to be authentic <laughs> or at, at all costs, but it's actually, it's very much depending on the context of the relationship and of our own capacity to hold some truth without necessarily sharing those with the world. If on the other side, there is a person who's not capable to hold what you have to share. Could we maybe pause here and then define what we mean by authentic and authenticity? For me, it's a difficult question. And I think what makes it difficult is because of all the buzz words and understanding around the word about, you know, that pressure of being the true self, authentic self, being mm-hmm. real and all that. So I think that's, uh, I don't think that's authenticity, but you wanted to say something, Chelsea, sorry. Oh, no, because initially, just now when we started talking about it, I know I jumped to and I think just the discussion did as well to sharing. So we have in our minds somehow that authenticity is tied to sharing of the self, so expression in some way, but then Zav brought up more of an internal authentic process. And so, yeah, I think it is important to 
define what we mean by authenticity. And I don't know, like for myself, if I have words for it right now, but I think like I have some kind of like image or picture that represents how I feel or what I think authenticity is for me. And so for me, Mm -hmm. I picture like, if you see somebody like walking around in the world, do they appear in like full flesh or are they kind of translucent or are they thick and impenetrable like stone? So for me, I notice like in my body for myself, when I'm feeling most authentic, it's more of like that fleshy, whole, full feeling that I am able to be impressed upon. So I'm not impenetrable, but there's also like a fullness to me that something or or someone isn't going to just pass right through me. So I'm here, I show up, there's a fullness mm-hmm. to it. And that's what comes to mind for mm-hmm. me. So, so there is a, a presence. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can uh, sense, we can feel the presence of someone who brings themselves <laughs> to an encounter or in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, I'm still uh, impressed by the image, like as I saw it, as you described it. And I think for for me, it's like avoiding buzzwords like self and all that, but like, it's more like that's my presence and what I'm saying and how I behave reflect who I am in my, more in my, how I know myself intimately in my essence. I guess you notice that I ran away from the self as a buzzword to the essence, which is much easier, of course. Just kidding. <laughs> but like, who do I know myself to be? Does it correspond how I present myself, what I speak, the projects I'm engaged, especially the actions in which I, I'm engaged? Mm-hmm. Do they um, reflect who I am? And my also not just who I am statically, like, you know, as a sum of qualities or lack of qualities, but like more like my existential project, so to speak, where I'm going, what I I would like to accomplish in my life, what do I want to contribute in the world, my existence. So is there a correspondence? Do I find myself in my existence and do I stand in my truth in my existence? Mm. Yeah, the phrase I like to kind of almost go with that is the permission to be myself. Mm-hmm. Like really, and, and this is kind of almost in some ways the opposite of what I was suggesting earlier, kind of that inner where you keep stuff. But what about for those of us who struggle to be ourselves with others in the face of others, to really show up, if you like, to really be, I was going to say enfleshed, uh, mm-hmm. embodied, but kind of in that present way. Because mm-hmm. that's very hard if you mm-hmm. are maybe, if you've been burned and hurt and never seen or appreciated or, or fairly treated. That would be the word for me, that that permission, can I allow myself to be me? Mm. Yeah, Mahila, maybe you could speak more to this since you did that beautiful two-year course on Heidegger. But from my understanding of how he defines authenticity is a standing up for, Mm -hmm. standing behind what one is, like an ownership, owning oneself, one's Mm -hmm. being in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And also it's not static and it's not just for the present moment, but it's owning oneself in light of the possibilities that I have to uptake and I have to make my own. Mm -hmm. So in light of my choices among the very many possibilities that I have in my world, in my existence, and do I basically take up and choose some of the possibilities and make them my own? 
So in that sense, I said mm-hmm. that I resist to talk about authentic self as if it is a sum of qualities. If I tell you now the list of qualities that feel that correspond the best to me and this is my authentic self, I think that's very non-Heidegger understanding mm-hmm. of self and authenticity. It's much more, as you said, uh, general dynamic and it's more like an mm-hmm. existential project that I author, really. I, I'm the author and I think we know that the etymologically authority, author, authenticity have the same root. So that shows that I, mm-hmm. I take up and I put my signature, not in a narcissistic way or, you know, to appropriate something, but like, this is my choice. This is how I choose to live my life. This is the possibilities that I want to bring to actualize. And you know mm-hmm. that authenticity is determined according to Heidegger only <laughs> basically at the end of our life. We cannot say right now, I'm authentic until we mm. die. And when we look at the uh, coherent you know, existential project mm. and how have we done and how did I stand up and how did I live my life? I remember learning about authenticity and feeling quite relieved about that, that there's so much more in the becoming because I, I had this angst about worrying whether I am authentic. Am I being authentic now? Am I being inauthentic? What if I think that I'm being authentic, but I'm really not being authentic? How do we really know ourselves? And it created this like huge angst, and that was quite relieving and liberating to learn that authenticity it is an act of authoring. It's something that we become. It's something that we're bringing into existence through our actions. And then the important question for me becomes, am I acting in accordance with myself? Am I acting in accordance with my values and who I want to be as I move forward, knowing that I'll change and that what may be in accordance for me now may not be in accordance for my future self who maybe won't make the same decisions, but that doesn't undermine that I can reflect on my authenticity in the moment as it's emerging. You, you said it so well, Janelle. Thank you. And listening to you, I also it's important to highlight that uh, we understand this in existentialism, existential analysis, a little bit different than the pop culture or other, other philosophies, perhaps, if they concern themselves with authenticity right that we we really emphasize the dynamic aspect the freedom and the choice and the fact that we uh, we take up our life and we don't know necessarily if it goes according to the plan and i cannot tell that i'm authentic i cannot decide right now mm-hmm. for myself i am authentic it's always depending on my values but also on what the situation asks from me what is needed from me in this particular situation and responding to that in my my way. It can be a mistake, it can be the wrong way, but as long as I take it up and I choose that, that is an instance of acting authentically. So to kind of help listeners, if you like, if we can never know until, you know, per Heidegger, Mm-hmm. that we've been authentic <laughs> until the end of our lives and at which point it's too late, how might we know now as we're alive that am I being authentic? And at the same time, I'm thinking in the back of my head that question that Janelle had, that kind of angst about am I being authentic, am I inauthentic, which probably isn't helpful in the for the individual in that moment, but I can see it if we 
can't know what are the indicators that I would be being authentic or mm-hmm. that I would be maybe not labeling it authentic, but being with myself, resonating with myself, acting responsibly with freedom, with choice, all of that. Yeah. What comes to mind is like for me in a concrete situation, right? Even in choosing like what I want to eat for lunch or something like that, right? And that is not very probably existentially doesn't have high stakes, existentially speaking, but it's still, uh, there are possibilities, right? And and if someone tries to convince me, oh, let's go for Greek food, and I'm like, I'm not in, in the mood for that, right? So I guess it turns back to an inner consent, but really noticing what is calling me in that situation, what is moving me, and what comes up, what is life calling me in that moment? It could be as simple as, okay, choosing something to eat. What I always say, that's sushi speak to me today or is it Greek or what is it? But like kind of paying attention to to how are we moved by the many possibilities encountered in the world, which requires remaining open to mm. the world, being in dialogue, allowing ourselves to be moved and noticing how we are how we are touched by that. And then of course, then the other part is like what is needed from me. Because sometimes it's not just about me eating something. In another situation I maybe also need it or a response from me is needed. So I guess it comes down to dialogue with the world, openness, allowing myself to be moved, like feeling my feelings, and then um, responding. I think the responding is the essential part, making a choice and responding. So in a maybe not too surprising way, the answer is be existential and you'll be authentic. Yes, and do the whole (laughs) PEA process, basically. (laughs) Even when you go for lunch. This is, by the way, dear listeners, this is how we live our lives. In a continuous... That is not true. (laughs) Mahala, you always choose sushi, so don't even act like Greeks on the table. I think that's more like my authentic self. Just kidding. And when we go to the other restaurant, you always get the taco. <laughs> well, that's uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mahal, you mentioned that that the choice, the response, is important. But I also hear so much that that reflexive capacity mm-hmm. is really important. Just being aware of being a self and being aware of a person who has choices, who can make choices, who actually can live in alignment with values who has values. I think that is really important. And it reminds me of, I know a little of uh, Sartre's concept of bad faith, but I quite like it the little that I know in terms of, he has this concept called bad faith, which is deceiving oneself in the sense of like, you believe yourself to be this way, but in fact, you're actually this way. And so if you've ever been in a conversation with someone and you they say, oh, well, you know, I'm just not flexible and that's just the way that I am. And it's just the way I'm always going to be. And that would be like an example of bad faith is not taking into account that we have the capacity to change and that we actually can become and that we're free to continue to grow and transform our experience of ourselves and whatnot. And so I think it, it can be quite interesting to hear almost some ways that people cut themselves off from being able to reflect on is how you are, how you think you are, the way that you really are, or is it, is it the way that you want to be as you move forward in your life? And so I, I like that you highlighted that, that that capacity to be in dialogue with the world and with oneself is so important, I think, to authenticity. 
I like that, Janelle, that, that bad faith. And as you were saying it, I could think of many people and indeed sometimes clients who, who have that approach or that kind of rigid stone, I think Chelsea kind of referred to earlier, stance. One thing I did want to say to address that little bit of humor we had just now, kind of being existential and and Mahila joked that I mean, this is how we are all the time. And then the, everybody else said, no, well, I mean, it's not entirely true, but what I would say is certainly the way I have, I like to think, become more existential and hopefully more authentic is by practicing it in very small doses on on banal things like which restaurant do I want to go to? Well, if somebody says, what's your preference? Previously, I would have said, I don't mind. That's kind of who I would have been, even though I did have a preference. Mm. And I say this a lot to my clients is start small. Yeah? Like when you leave the office and you choose whether to go right or left, how come? Ask yourself. Don't just go the way that you came, right? That kind of thing. So it is kind of being existential, maybe not 24-7, not purely, but I think it's, it's helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think something, thank you for that. And um, I think I mentioned to you that I really appreciate your gift to bring us down to earth a bit, like to say like, and, and I like the advice, like start small and <laughs> persist kind of thing. And I also wanted to, something that came up is Janelle and you are speaking for me is like that, uh, Janelle, I think if I heard your question correctly, was like how come that people cut themselves off from themselves and from the opportunity of living authentically. And I think uh, it's important to recognize that uh, living authentically is quite terrifying. And it's um, for some people and it invokes a lot of fear. And I think Heidegger also wrote a lot about this angst and about uh, the fear of being authentic. It's much more comfortable to be inauthentic. And according to Heidegger, this is our basic state anyways, to be inauthentic. And authenticity is a development a variation of being inauthentic because we are living in society, we are socialized in a certain way. And depending on our upbringing, we may be marked for life by certain uh, beliefs or uh, rules and so on. So we can uh, be disconnected from ourselves. Maybe nobody asks us growing up, how are you doing? What is your preference? To what restaurant do you want to go today? And then there is no training in that and no exposure to that. And it's, it's also very terrifying to realize, oh my God, I'm responsible for my life. I alone have to make choices and to stand by them and to take the consequences. So I think some people may be quite anxious. And I like that Dr. Gabor Mate actually talks about how People are often faced with a choice between attachment and authenticity. And so we could go into attachment as a talk in and of itself. But essentially that when you are threatened, when your attachment or your ability to belong with your community or to be accepted by your caregivers, your parents or what have you, when that's threatened, people will often forego their own authenticity or being choosing an alignment with themselves to belong to their group. So it is scary. Sometimes it does mean actually that you may be an outsider or there may be a quality of being an outcast if you are to pursue authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I think too that that can happen a lot earlier on too, like with developmental trauma, that a person's authenticity doesn't get to come into a fullness a lot of the time because of 
the things that interfere or that have happened or that have become a trauma in the life. And so then, you know, as you get older as an adult and move away from some of those things, I think a lot of people can feel like, who am I really? Like, am I just stuffed full of things that other people have given me or that I've grown up with or beliefs without really having been able to exercise that autonomy, that sense of choice, those decisions along the way. And I think that's a really important piece, like what Zav was saying about starting small, being able to take one piece at a time, one decision at a time, and to check in with the self around, yeah, what do I prefer here? What's important to me? Where do I see myself in this? Yeah, that reminds me of Erickson's stages of development, kind of the tasks that he, that a child essentially needs to achieve at each stage. And one of them is, I forget them, but industry, and this is like young children. Mm-hmm. And so taught to your developmental trauma, right? The industry and autonomy mm-hmm. and and all these things. And if you don't get that as a child, then how are you supposed to be authentic as an adult? And it's incredibly difficult. And I know, you know, I've got a four-year-old, well, he's almost five now. And so it's really neat to see those stages and to try and encourage those things. And then you're always, of course, as a parent stuck between, well, how much industry mm-hmm. do I want to allow my child? And how much... What's the word? I just used it. Uh, Leeway. How much? Basically, Mm -hmm. how much autonomy do I give him before he jumps off a cliff? (laughs) I mean, that's a bit of an extreme situation, but Mm -hmm. but with a four-year-old, not entirely impossible. (laughs) No, indeed. So I want to ask a provocative question, like about therapy and psychotherapy, and to bring it back to us here. Like, and maybe each of us can offer some insights to that. How are we authentic as therapists? Are we authentic therapists? And how does that look like in therapy, like for a therapist Mm. to be authentic? And that's a kind of a build up in my mind, a stepping stone towards uh, asking like how to cultivate authenticity in the therapeutic hour or 90 minutes or two hours. It doesn't matter. Therapeutic session, I should say. But how can we be authentic and model that? And are we, or are we sometimes failing to be real, true? And then how can we cultivate that uh, authentic presence and um, authenticity in when we are with our clients? That's always a, a tough one because mm-hmm. I think we, we stray into the, the realms of too much, let's say, self-disclosure which is, I think, as personally, I think is very important to do, to self-disclose sometimes, or even indeed immediacy, saying, okay, but you said this, but you're still smiling. And that just doesn't make sense. And that's yet me quite confrontational, and particularly if people are unused to that. But I'd say that examples of where I've, I mean, of course, I like to think I'm an authentic therapist. It would be, I'd be very sad if I discovered that I wasn't at all. But are you really? Well, <laughs> well, this is a good question. And so I think examples of where I have are, uh, I remember a client telling me about how somebody very close to them had died quite tragically and they were almost dispassionate when they told me. And it, we're talking about like a very brutal, horrible kind of death. And I couldn't contain my tears. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a therapist, you... It's supposed to be then hold spaces for this. In this instance, it was just too much. It was too sad not to cry. And so, I mean, you know, I wasn't 
collapsed on the floor, you know, thinking then in my life, but I did, I had visible tears and, and I often cry with clients like that. And, and if I do have tears, I don't hide them. I allow them to, I don't take, get a tissue, right? Partly because I think that's how else is a human supposed to react to something so awful. And then partly also sometimes to demonstrate that it's okay to feel sadness, to be sad, to have that painful emotion. I think that's an, an example. Yeah, it sounds like you approach therapy and your role as a therapist with openness to be moved by your clients and moved by their stories, their sharings, their own emotions. It touches you and there's certainly like an authenticity there in your tears that you know, something very real is happening right there in the therapeutic dynamic. Yeah, and thanks for putting it that way. But yeah, absolutely. I am certainly touched by my clients all the time, most of the time. Uh, there mm-hmm. are probably some times when I'm not or something's <laughs> happened or in which case yeah. I'm not being terribly authentic. And you mean you get bored sometimes? Are we getting bored as therapists? I would say very infrequently, one of the reasons I love this job is it's almost never dull. Mm-hmm. There's almost always something interesting, fascinating. And it doesn't even have to be that the story that the client's bringing is particularly interesting, but it's the fact that they are bringing it that it's interesting or what it means in the grander scheme of things. And and so it's rare that I get bored. It happens. It does happen, but it's rare. That brings up something for me once in a while Mahila, I noticed that in like different group processes that you've been, when somebody's been talking and sharing, you will interject and just say, I feel like I lost you. I don't know where you are right now. I felt you before when you were talking about this. Yes, you don't remember this, but you you do. And I think that is very, very profound way of bringing somebody therapeutically back to their authentic experience when they've gone off on a trail somewhere else or they've lost the emotionality to what they're saying. They've lost the experiencing Mm -hmm. because you can feel it. I know I get bored Mm -hmm. in sessions sometimes where I feel like, I don't know, the person is talking, but there's nothing happening. There's no movement. And because they're not there. Yeah. When you call it out and you're immediate like that, you don't do it in a harsh way whatsoever. You do it in like a very, I hate to use the word authentic again, Mm -hmm. but authentic way of like, I lost you. And this is me pointing out that I'm, I'm wanting to reach you again. Yeah, that's true. I want definitely to reach them. And it's very hard to, when you generally say that the person is not there, it's almost like, oh, please come, come back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, it's so, it's so felt when someone is not there suddenly or where they go somewhere that has nothing to do with their presence. So yes, I guess I do that. But um, because I feel that, so I think um, something we can do maybe in therapy is to attend to ourselves constantly and how we feel and to be willing to risk sometimes to share that, to say, hey, right now I'm disconnected. Of course, much better than saying, oh, you are so boring, right? So always, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think uh, talking about the impact, our experience, but that for that, it means that we have to be with ourselves. As a younger therapist starting out, I had a bit of a crisis would be a strong word, but it is certainly a struggle in trying to differentiate myself from my role as a therapist. 
because I had spent, being a therapist was basically a lifelong dream. I don't really remember as a time as a kid when I didn't want to be one. And so I got quite fixated on becoming a therapist. And then I went to grad school, yippee, and became a therapist. And life is great. And I'm doing what I was always set out to do. And I'm going to say this with tenderness because I don't want it to come across like I don't like being a therapist or haven't appreciated being a therapist. But what then emerged in working full-time as a therapist was this like counter swing or this counter pull of a little bit of a resentment toward being a therapist because I had sacrificed quite a bit of myself and didn't tap into enough mystery of who Janelle is outside of being a therapist. And then all of a sudden I was spending most of my time doing this one thing. And I felt this desire come up to know myself in a different way. And fortunately, right now, that struggle has quieted a bit because I've now said, okay, obviously, I need to spend my time outside of hours to really discover different parts of me. So in our existential training, that was definitely helpful to learn about roles in terms of sometimes we can over-identify with the roles that we do. So, and this can apply, I think, to anybody in terms of being like being a mother or being an artist or what have you, sometimes that role actually can become a little bit suffocating. So when I was able to sink into the present and being with clients, there's no doubt that I love meeting with people and being with them in their suffering and celebrating the ups in their lives. I think that's such a gift, actually. But I also had to learn how to be me in other respects in my life. And and that, I think has culminated into more of a a sense of authenticity in my day-to-day experience or feeling less less like off kilter and so that that has been a good experience but I like what you said earlier Mahila that it can be scary because it was scary it has been scary to discover parts of myself that didn't give much room to emerge but it's also been beautiful and I've brought those pieces back into being a therapist so that has been interesting for me to consider that something actually ended up taking up too much space. And I felt that, yeah, there was more to be discovered. Janelle, I really like that showing and clearly, you know, a very kind of intimate piece, but what you said about discovering those parts of yourself, that reflection that's required, because it's all very well to say what we think, and this maybe tends towards your, the concept, the Sartrean concept you had of bad faith of, but there's, a lot of ourselves that we need to discover in order to be authentic, in order to really Mm -hmm. be ourselves, not just say what comes to mind, but what about those things that haven't or that have been suppressed or ignored or or denied? Certainly, I was talking about this with a client the other day about allowing anger, really, and that for him it's just anathema to anything he could possibly do, and yet it resides in him. It's quite easy to see, actually, if you know what to look for. And so him learning about that anger and all those parts of him. It's a really cool thing you bring up there, Janelle. Thank you. It's connected to, again, our own self-awareness and the work that we, as therapists, we have to do outside therapy to know those suppressed or repressed parts that you're talking about, Sav, and to, again, take ownership and to own them and to see how can they play maybe even a a good role in our life, even if they seem not so not the best. 
But how do they contribute mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. making ourselves who we are mm-hmm. rather than repressing them and not allowing them? And this is, I think, a, a little bit of what we tried to do last in the last episode, kind of mm-hmm. almost demonstrate. And one of the techniques that, that we do in training is where those people that are around you give their impressions of you. And the idea that you take them in and, and feel them and feel what they do to you, and then you get to decide if they've maybe illuminated a part of you that you hadn't known or you hadn't really wanted to acknowledge, or indeed if they're entirely wrong. And so that that process of finding things out, not just within a dialogue with yourself, but also with the other and how that can illuminate things, mm-hmm. certainly for me was a, a very pivotal moment in in the training. On this note, I, I would like to invite our listeners to try that in their lives, maybe to reach out to close friends, colleagues, and to ask for this uh, feedback, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you want to, to do an exercise, a small activity in, um, in finding out how the way you appear to others, how you see yourself correspond or not, and how, how much mm-hmm. of a discrepancy is there, and typically there is some. But like, try to do that, like ask your friends or colleagues, trusted people, close people, people who know you in different capacities, like how, how do you appear? And then see to it, don't get defensive, don't argue with the impressions, but just take them in and see how do they impact you and do they correspond with who you know about yourself that you are. And that's... Um, if there is a huge discrepancy, maybe there is something to look at and see how come they don't meet. Not to say that if there is a discrepancy, you are not authentic. That's not the point. But like, it's important, as you said, Sav, to have a perspective from outside and the inside perspective and to have them in dialogue. Mm. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's helpful to identify impression from fact, mm-hmm. too, because I think sometimes in being authentic or even in sharing an impression or receiving one, it can be like, oh, this is what this person thinks of me, or this is who I am, or this is who they are, when really it's it's more of this is how I experience them. This is how they experience me. And so then from that kind of a lens, it's not necessarily a threatening thing. It's it's information, okay, of like maybe yeah, there's like a shadow side or a repressed side or a blind side that I might not be able to see. Or like Zav was saying, maybe they have it wrong and and I know myself better on the inside. So yeah, I think that's kind of an important thing to to point out because I think that's what can sometimes keep us Mm -hmm. from sharing an impression Mm -hmm. or or being open to receiving one. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, feedback is so scary. I mean, receiving feedback it's so scary and potentially shaming experiences shaming even if we want the very best and we try ourselves to be authentic right but the other person may feel quite shamed or criticized by it because yeah you're so right Chelsea we tend to say oh if you tell me that this is how you see me oh my god this is who I am Mm -hmm. what does it mean Mm-hmm. Oh no! What is am I this, going to do with it? Is this how other people see me mm-hmm. too? Mm-hmm. While well, the important part there is to enter in dialogue with with those impressions and take a position and say, "Well, yeah, that corresponds." Or I'm not sure about this. I'm going to watch myself, you know, acting and see. And coming back, the most important piece is not like uh, that we are 
an authentic set of qualities or a set of qualities or impressions make us authentic is ultimately how we live our life, how we take up our existence, how we choose, how we use our freedom in um, making our life our own. I really liked how Janelle worded it earlier as that active authoring Mm -hmm. of one's life and existence. I think that captured it really well. That, yeah, am I acting in a way that is consistent and resonant with with who I am and where I am and with who I'm with? Mm-hmm. And so if a client comes to us and say, oh, I'm here because I want to be authentic. I just did the impression exercise you suggested on the podcast and I figured out that I'm pretty not <laughs> authentic and now I, I want to do some therapy and I want you to help me become authentic. What do we do? That's a very concrete example, just for yourself. So I totally expect you to answer, authentically speaking. <laughs> My authentic response is, I'm, I've gone blank. <laughs> My real, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a big thing to kind of ask. Uh, I don't have a response, but it seems like Chelsea does. <laughs> I'd go all like interpersonal and experiential on that shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just, I would, go full on then with the therapeutic relationship and just bring it right back to the here and now, Fritz Perls, Gestalt, how is it for you to be sitting across from me right now? How is it right now for us to be together and just start inviting that authenticity and that experiencing right out? And if they respond to you, I'm fine. Don't you see that I'm fine? Then we start with emotional dishonesty. Yeah, like, well, something is pulling you towards more authenticity and fine seems kind of vague to me. I don't have a sense of you within fine. Mm -hmm. You're so nice, Chelsea. (laughs) Okay, Janelle, tell us your version. Yeah, what's your version of that? Tell us authentically (laughs) your version. Oh, I know Janelle's version. Bullshit. (laughs) You can't handle the truth. Um, I mean, if someone walked in and said that, I'd get very excited. Uh, That would authentically come up in me and say, welcome to the, a lifelong commitment to walk with yourself, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm with Chelsea in the sense that then you meet. Mm-hmm. Then you, then I would meet with the client as, as a person. And then if there's blockages to their person from emerging, we would look at that and that, not to sound so mysterious, but blockages could just be that, you know, not able to express emotion or identify emotion within themselves. And we go there, uh, any kind of disruptions in communication with people and relationships, then we go there. So it's so broad. I mean, if somebody walked in and said, I want to work on authenticity, that wouldn't that tells me a lot and tells me very little mm-hmm. at, at the same time. So, but there would be a beginning and that's exciting. That's a nice little phrase to end your, your, your point on there. Yeah, there would be a beginning and that would be exciting. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that, mm-hmm. that's really kind of the, I think we, you're kind of touching on that, what we were talking about Heidegger earlier, that kind of the beginning and the becoming, right? The continuous mm-hmm. becoming like this. The possibilities, the openness, and that is exciting. I, you know, as soon as you said it, I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm excited too." Here, uh, I think mm-hmm. it'd be a fabulous way of of approaching that with with a client. Mm-hmm. Certainly, many, many, I think, I think you stand corrected, 
famous therapists have talked about therapy being a journey. And I think Yalom mm-hmm. talks about, is it Yalom who talks about walking side by yeah, side with your the, client or the something like that? Fellow traveler. Fellow traveler, that's, yes. that's it. I knew it was. was that. <laughs> yeah, but what you all shared in different forms, reminding me what we um, say in EA, that only the essence can see the essence, only through my essence and my own kind of own self, I can uh, encounter yourself and only when you are mirrored and we are encountered and that level, real kind of level, we can uh, begin to access our mm-hmm. own self. So I guess uh, what all of you kind of share is like the relationship coming into that encounter, real encounter is a very important point. And while as I agree with you, Janelle, if someone says I want to be authentic, help me, it's um, exciting, but very little. But I think that once we turn to that encounter and we attune to ourselves, to who we are, and then offer our impressions and responses from that place, I think we draw out the same level of um, realness from our client. If, as you said, Janelle, if there are no massive obstacles or disruptions either in perception of reality or feeling or their sense of self. Mm -hmm. But usually this encounter uh, that is also very scary sometimes, very vulnerable, uh, that is uh, promoting that desire to to be seen and to show oneself. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens, it changes the experience of the therapy room, the therapy hour, like in contrast to what we were talking about with, you know, sometimes feeling bored in therapy occasionally. Alternatively, when there is that like essence to essence, that experiencing mm-hmm. that dialogue, the encounter, that journeying alongside, there's a different feeling in the room. To me, a therapy session will feel like it's gone in 10 minutes instead of an hour. There's a thickness in the room. There's a a presence that is felt, a different kind of energy. And for me, I love being a therapist Mm -hmm. because of that. It's, I was reflecting on it last week, actually. I'm like, in my own therapy, I was saying, you know, it's a very strange role or job being a therapist. It's not really a job. You, mm-hmm. you know, wake up a human being and then you keep <laughs> being human all day long. <laughs> and yeah, it's really, yeah, it's this shared space where two humans show up and encounter each other. There's different roles, but it's not like, I don't know, a typical kind of nine to five that. I've had before. It's just very, very human, and and I love that part. Absolutely. I mean, I can't. I, I can only endorse exactly what you said, Chelsea. I developed a little bit of a a phrase, a little catchphrase that we could use. Catchphrase is the wrong word, but I think what we're ultimately saying as therapists and and with clients is that the more you are you, and the more I am me, the more we discover each other. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, the where the best therapy comes out that really we we are there together we're as you said we're human in that we continue to be human each and every time so as shocking as it sounds uh, being authentic requires relationships and it's a Uh, relational construct even if it's about myself okay that was a joke that is shocking i was just (laughs) stating the obvious but but absolutely you you can't be authentic on your Mm -hmm. own Mm mm-hmm I mean, you can in relationship with yourself, but in order to what you said, Sav, like mm. uh, 
the more I am I, the more you mm-hmm. are you, that definitely captures the, um, the relational part of mm-hmm. authenticity. Yeah, for, for example, there was, I read this really fascinating article recently about a, a gentleman in Maine or Vermont in the US who at the age of about 23 just walked into the woods and he lived in the woods on his own with no contact with anybody for about 27 years or something. And he was caught because he would break into people's houses and like to steal supplies and stuff. But he didn't talk to a single person for 27 years. And in many ways, he had that kind of the ideal stereotypical kind of hermit and kind of, I could see many people kind of looking to him as, oh, well, he was just living his authentic self, like who he wanted to be and where he wanted to be. But in relation to whom? To no one, to literally nobody. And I would say that that would be very difficult to actually be you. I mean, I suppose if you're on your own, there isn't Mm -hmm. a need to be you because it doesn't really matter. Because there is no I and there is no other. That's a very provocative thought. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, what does it mean? Basically, that I am myself if there is no other. Well, I think in, even in with that man, since presumably he lived with others until that age when he went to the woods, there was an other, his inner world was populated with others anyways. And yes, so, and also I'm aware of the time and we will wrap mm-hmm. up here, but just as a final thought to his clients, so our presence being myself as therapist um, invites themselves to be themselves, but then also uh, in how we understand authenticity in existential analysis, it's also to, to ask our clients, what would you like to do? You have so many possibilities in your life. Which one do you choose? Oh, I don't know. I may, I'm afraid of making a mistake. That's all the time. What if I fail? What if I make a mistake? What if it's the wrong choice? And working with that and saying, yeah, it's possible. It's the wrong choice, but it's yours. Mm-hmm. And so like, again, also encouraging the responsibility and uh, the choice and reminding them that it's not a static thing. It changes. It's not that you achieved authenticity now and you hold on to it, mm-hmm. that it's um, an ongoing process. And we leave it at every mm-hmm. choice, at every every time we have a possibility to, to take up. I think those are fantastic words to, to end on, Mahila. I want to say I'm, I'm surprised and really grateful that, that we all seem to share something a little bit more intimate and authentic mm-hmm. i suspect that then we maybe had intended to or that we might have thought of and partly i i'd suggest that comes through through because of the dialogue that we're having mm-hmm. that we are with each other and that kind mm-hmm. of helps and stimulates mm-hmm. you know as soon as one person shares mm-hmm. another person feels a bit more comfortable mm-hmm. sharing i'd suggest but thank you i think that was really mm-hmm. great thank you So our existential question for today and looking forward to the next episode is what brings you meaning in your life? You can interpret that in any way you can possibly imagine and as always, send us your responses by email, Instagram, Facebook um, and any other method you might think of. Follow us on Instagram at Existentialist Podcast and let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com.